Welcome to the Running On Purpose podcast. My name's Steve, and I'm your host. This is a bonus episode. I'm releasing a previously recorded and released episode of the short-lived project that Jason and I, Jason Brooks and I did called the Arete podcast under the name Run Gnosis as well. I know, it's confusing. I had all these kinds of ideas. But anyway, I'm re-releasing this episode because it was not... It wasn't very popular, um, but I don't think anybody really even knew it was existing. There, I think there are a grand total of, you know, 200 or 300 or, I don't know, less than 1,000 downloads or, or listens of the episode in total. But there, and of course, the recording quality on this episode is really bad, um, especially on my side. You'll have to kind of fiddle with your knobs a little bit, unfortunately. Um, but I think the conversation is filled with gold. Uh as I mentioned in the last Running on Purpose podcast, which is released also today, where I do a solo episode on this topic, um, sometimes getting more context and discussion around these heady kind of meta-foundational ideas can be really challenging. And this discussion has a lot of takeaways and some practical applications that probably would have taken me way too long to, to, to articulate in that solo episode. And on top of that, I hope to coax my interlocutor, um, my brother in soul and the run, Jason, to continue where we started with these episodes. So if you like this discussion, there are several more um, in this experiment. It's under the show name, as I said, Arete or Run Gnosis. I've got some links below in the, in the show notes where you can find them, at least for their Apple Podcasts and Spotify, where most people are finding these things. Um, you can just search Run Gnosis and Arete. That's A-R-E-T-E. And as usual, I'm honored by your ears and attention. I simply ask that you bring these ideas forward and apply them to your personal running journey. My goal is to revision running and to steal the toxic culture of acquisition and outcomes over the freedom and fluid process of self-discovery and soul-making. Godspeed, my friends. Godspeed. Hello, world. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Arete podcast with Jason Brooks and Steve Sisson. I just wanted to create this initial intro because the sound quality on this particular recording is really poor. I, it's all my fault. I was trying out a new, a new system, and I hadn't test run it, and I just assumed that everything was going very well. But you'll hear in this that Jason comes through pretty strong, um, and I come through like I'm in a tin can and, and much softer. The content in this I'm really proud of. I think Jason and I were having a lot of fun, and I hope hope that you all will enjoy it as well. And this intro is really just here to ask you to have some patience with us, especially me. Um, I assure you that uh, the next episode that we cut will have a much higher sound quality and there won't be a need to uh, fiddle with your dials. So again, super excited about this podcast series and I hope you'll listen um, and enjoy and uh, just have some level of forgiveness and grace for the poor recording quality. Thank you.
Well, hey, Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? I'm doing great. I've uh, I've thought uh, already about this process, about recording these episodes, and and I thought, you know what? What if we didn't start with this sort of typical intro? What if we were just, yeah. like, hey, what's up? How are you doing? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> or just... Just jumped in, just jumped in like people might show up if you were having a beer at a bar and you sit down at the you sit down at the bar and two people are in a conversation and you just happen to jump in wherever they're at. Like to me, right. it's like where in our lives do we have conversations where people say, oh, well, we're going to right now have a conversation. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I've always been uncomfortable with formality everywhere in my life, right? Like. Uh, well, let's make a uh, let's make a commitment that this Arete podcast will be informal, informal conversations. Now, we won't just be well; we will probably be wandering all off into all <laughs> other kind of spaces. But we'll usually come with at least one concept, um, and and we'll cover one basic concept. Just like maybe two friends might get together and say, "Hey, let's talk about X." Right. So, in this case, we're going to be talking about. Um, what what I like to call the view, uh, with a capital T and a capital V. Um, sometimes in the world you'll hear it called a worldview. Uh, the I I learned about this concept from um, some theological studies I did when I was um, in college, um, and the Germans call it a Weltanschauung, which basically means w- the, what you're looking at. The world as you look at it, basically a worldview and how you see reality. And that's kind of the way I have, um, once I was introduced to that concept, this was like when I was probably 20, I mean, I was probably 18 or 19 years old. Um, I've never been able to get it out of my head that for some reason, this idea of having a view of the world or the way you see things as um, an essential piece to how every human being operates. But as I've walked through my life, like most people don't think about this. And most people are not in a position where they're actually questioning it. You have to move into philosophical conversations where people talk about metaphysics like ontology, which is the study of what being is, or, or um, epistemology is how do we know what we know. Um, and mm-hmm. you know though, that topic of metaphysics, um, especially over the last... 50 to 100 years has been the, the, the bastard stepchild of the philosophical movement. It's been like, oh, we don't need that anymore. We've got the scientific method. We've got, we're going to use analytics to try to figure out what this all is. We're going to break things down to logic. Um, but to me, maybe it's because of the spiritual upbringing, the religious upbringing I had. It always seemed like I needed to know where the bottom of something was. I like to say, how, where's the bottom of the pool that you push off of? I say this to my athletes all the time. Like, and they're, they're always like, what? And so it's, it, what I mean by that is like, you, you know, when you're in trouble, when things are not, when the world is not operating the way you think it should, or the way it, 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 it we have a conception of, of things. We're not on top of our lives or the, we have this feeling of being kind of um, what I call underwater. What I think of it's just being underwater. Like you can't get your head up above, above um, the water to breathe and to function. Um, and so I always think about like I need to get to the bottom of the pool so I can push off because I'm not. I'm having an inability to get through whatever I'm getting through. 
Does that resonate with you at all? When you think about the idea of a worldview, do you do you do you do you, do you come at it from that perspective, or do you come at it from a different perspective? I actually really like that idea of where's the bottom of the pool you push off of. Um, but that's pretty good. I, I do think about it as um, how, f- for me, it's all about how my experiences in this life uh, have colored the lens that I look out at the world from. Um, and and really, that is, it's cognitive more than it's visual, right? We we talk about lens, and that gives mm-hmm. you, or like even the view, right, um, connotes this like visual appeal of the world. But really, it's how do we cognitively interpret our day to day experience and everything that comes at us in this world. <clears throat> And so for me, that view is yeah, it's really good. ever evolving, right? And um, it encompasses the past, the present, the future. And it's, it's um, it, the, the filter is a composition of our lived experiences, the things that we've learned, um, the, the things that we believe in, we, we learn things, whether we, we read them, whether we viscerally experience them, uh, or whether somebody tells us them. And um, we have the opportunity, you know, to not take any of that for granted. And, and instead to, to ask questions and, and reflect on our lived experience and how it matches or doesn't match what we what we think we know about the world. Um, and, and so without, <laughs> without getting like totally lost in the weeds and drowning in the pool, if you will, um, you know, we have an opportunity to push off the bottom from time to time and make our way to the surface and kind of think, Oh, Hey, <laughs> I'm breathing. Uh, I'm looking around. What do I see? Mm. Yeah. And I think this is something that, you know, one of the reasons why I I pitched this initially as one of our as one of the things to talk about is is that in my experience personally, um, I've I've always lived with this, but I noticed that other like I stated earlier, I, I didn't feel like a lot of other people did. So one of the things I really appreciated about you was that I knew you were thinking about a worldview as you were in your life trying to work through it, and I could feel that sort of tug, that sort of push me pull me experience of how do I operate in this moment of freedom and flexibility and choices and aliveness from a place that matches my, my, who I want to be and how I want to play this life out. Um, But that's the positive side. Like I always felt that in you, the negative side is something I wanted to use to try to argue to our listeners why they should keep listening to us on this topic. And that's because as a coach, um, while I had this personal experience of the value and necessity of a worldview, I had this experience as a coach where um, I was working with elite athletes. These are athletes who competed at very high level in the college game. And we had, I, had, I was a pro coach for a number of years, and I recruited them to come run for my team. 
So these were athletes who had been through a lot. They'd been really competitively highly excellent in high school, um, in college, enough for them to even think about continuing to do it beyond um, the the college game in, in an uncertain world where the finances were very low. There wasn't a lot of return on investment as opposed to moving into their normal careers. And so they were, but they were moving into a scary phase where the bottom of the pool, as we might say, even financially in all areas, like their, their, their structure of support was now gone. And we, as a, as a pro team, we were trying to create a structure of support and we did a really good job of that. We, we did, we did the best we could do with the resources we had and we took it very, very seriously. But my athletes were getting into experience, getting into situations on the starting line and at the finish line where they were really disappointed with what they were doing. And this is, I take this really fucking seriously. Um, I always say that a coach, all coaches worth their salt have a win-loss record. Um, you need to take the game seriously if somebody's going to pay you money or if they're going to be responsible for someone's performances. It needs to be something you take seriously. And so I would constantly reflect, what was I doing wrong that my athlete was having this poor experience? And there's a lot of things, a lot of things that can go wrong from the program design, program implementation, um, individualizing for each athlete in an effective way. There's so many different variables, as you know, as a coach, it's really a challenging piece. And, you know, over the years, I, I just kept wrestling with that angel, right? Kept wrestling with it, wrestling with it, wrestling with it. I got to a point where I re realized um, at the base level, my athletes were full of shit. Um, and not as human beings, but just about what they were doing. And then I realized that they, they were coming at a starting line experience or coming at a race, per, per thinking about what they were going to do from running a race perspective from a place where they thought they knew something. They thought they had a ground. And when I would ask them what that ground was, what makes you believe you're able to do this thing? They would look to me for the answer. And I would say back to them, you did the work. You had the experience. I just cultivated the experience. I just created the dynamic. I put the, I put the pieces of the puzzle in place. You, you went through those. So can you come back to me and say, I'm ready to do run uh, 13 minutes and 45 seconds for a 5K or under, under 10 minutes for a steeplechase for a woman or something? Um, and they'd be, yes. It's be like, okay, we believe we can do it. Like we're ready. Let's go do it. Let's just, just get on the starting line and do it. They would get in the starting line and somewhere in the middle of the race, they would start doubting what they could do. And I'm like, oh, but, but we did it. So after a number of years of doing this, I got to the point where I realized, oh, like they're not full of shit about their performance because they did all these workouts. They're full of shit about who they are as a human being. <laughs> like, wait, I was giving them credit. They don't have a place they're coming from that is that they can count on. And I began to realize that one of the critical jobs of a coach, at least with people who are functioning at a level where their identity or their 
or their what Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yep. it's a low level. It's a base level, survival level question. Like this is a very important thing. And underneath that survival thing is your worldview, in my view. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it talks about the highest level you get to this point. Well, yeah, but underneath all of that is that most people need to know why they're doing a thing. Right. And so I would just and, and I had an experience with um, an athlete who was a really strong, fundamental, had a really strong Christian walk, really strong Christian walk. And so I just started talking to him about about how his Christian faith played out in his rate training and racing. And he's like, oh, it plays out in my training all the time. But in racing, it's a very big challenge. So we just started working on bringing his faith into his training and then bringing his faith into his racing. And immediately he started performing at a much higher level. But it was really challenging for everybody else who didn't have this um, underlying spiritual or religious upbringing, which is a grounding framework for them. And it began this lifelong, ever since then, that's probably been 10, 10, 12 years ago, I have been thinking about how do we articulate worldview in an appropriate and effective way for athletes to begin to use that in a functioning way to make their performances even better, to make their starting line experiences an even more um, meaningful thing because it aligns with some sort of base level purpose of who they are as a human being, um, a more of a, of a place in which they can operate as an artist where they're not feeling like this just, I have to make this thing happen. But look, I already know I'm okay. I already know everything's just fine. I already know that this is just one small piece of a much larger puzzle that I'm a part of. But without a worldview, it really doesn't function as a, it becomes overwhelming that one race becomes sort of becomes so big that it be kind of comes becomes the worldview and, and it can't it, that race can't hold that up and of course the more challenging that yeah. race you know with collegiate and pro athletes it's all building towards a peak it's not just one big event like marathoners they don't do a lot of racing and they train 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 and then they race but for collegiate athletes it's each race is a small part of an overall puzzle that puts out to the last final big command performance where they're like here i am and i found wow those athletes who had a worldview had a much more comprehensive cohesive and wonderful experience. And so I wrestle with it all the time as a coach. I think about it. So I, I bring that story up, that, that sort of background up to tell people, hey, I have watched in, um, in, a, in a high level practical experience how a worldview fundamentally changes someone's performance. And at the end of the day, you and I both agree, Jason, this is the bottom. This is something they're all dealing with. A worldview is something that they're working through, no matter whether they're conscious of it or articulating it or not. So how do we help or what what is that responsibility? So hopefully what we do here in this episode, if nothing else, I mean, I don't believe that I'm going to I've got no interest whatsoever in helping someone to to, to providing someone a worldview <laughs> that would be way beyond the context of something I'm interested in. Like I am out on that. Right? <laughs> yeah. But what I do hope is that I can actually say. Do you see why having a worldview is important? Can you can right. you at least grasp it? Because if we can get them at the start of this project to grasp that a worldview does the view from which you sit, the place from which you sit is important, then a lot of what we talk about over the next couple of months or years or however long this podcast project goes on will make sense. Yeah, this is something that, How does that resonate is, with you. Yeah, this, it's a foundational concept, right? And ha 
knowing your worldview, everybody has one. <clears throat> That's like, let's just start there. Uh, you have one whether you know it or not. And it was either inherited from the cultural indoctrination you got into your family growing up or uh, whatever you subsequently did. Um, so knowing it is important, right? That's going to, it's going to be a key for, for being grounded, uh, as you're, as you're alluding here, Steve, and that being grounded, understanding that view and being able to lean on it is going to be important because what are some things that are going to come from it? Right. It, it may be something like faith. Um, it, it's going to be some kind of value-based system that you have, whether that's rooted in and faith or other things that you've defined as your values and what are important to you. And those can be, those can be moral. That could be how you want to spend your time, what is important to you in that context. Um, and, and it can include a lot of other things, right? Like your education, your political affiliation, your gender identity, your sexual preferences, like so much of that, right. is going to, shape your worldview and everybody has one everyone's is unique um and so that's also something to learn to get comfortable with right um and it's ever changing so you know and i've already talked about that but that's an important thing to to keep in mind right because um it, it as it is something that is important for keeping you grounded it's an it's important not to become unmoored when your worldview changes and that could be there are things that can happen in your life that can fundamentally change the way you see the world and that can be unsettling. And so that's also like an important thing, I think, to keep in mind and to look out for. And like you said, the, what really we can hope to achieve in, in, in the conversation about this topic is that one, hey, there is this thing, your, your view, this is the real thing. Um, to be aware of it and to start to understand it and what shaped it, what it really is, is extremely important. And then we can come back to the practical and the pragmatic points of it, which are uh, how, how can you start to work with and inside your worldview um, and how can you make the, the grounded connection points? For, for that view um, and and how it shapes your experiences, emotional experiences, um, your, your relationship experiences, race experiences. And there's a lot, you know, we'll get, we'll get into the weeds a little bit, but um, because we're, because view is a matter of perspective, it's going to be so important for how you handle challenges, successes and failures in a sport like running. Uh, especially if you invest a lot of time in that part of your person. Yeah. I had a coach who um, was really, really important to me um, after I ran, after I finished my collegiate career, I ran post-collegiately for a few years. And I had a coach who basically shared with me at one point in time, his worldview, his worldview was really simple. We're buck naked and all alone. <laughs> Right. And, yeah. and that, that, that he didn't state it as a worldview. Right. But as a young, as a person who had lost his faith, um, which I mentioned before and, and was looking for my worldview in that place, like I took on his worldview for a little bit. And this is a really interesting concept is if you don't think you have one step in somebody else's shoes for a little bit and argue with them 
right? So in this case, this person said, I'm buck naked and all alone. And I said, oh yeah, I've had that experience many times. Um, and then I just spent a lot of time thinking about, but, but did I really view reality that way? Did I think that um, I was completely and utterly alone? This was a time I wasn't in, involved in a long-term um, you know, a romantic relationship. I was unmoored from my college years. I was no longer part of my, under my family's household. I was, I was becoming a young adult trying to work through what all those things were. So if there was ever a time to be buck naked and all alone, um, I really was. And, and yet yeah. I had this experience through that process where I said, when I go on to um, a trail, you know, I, have a, I, I started trail running at a very young age. I have a very, two divergent experiences as a runner. One is on the roads and one is on the trail, and they are different. When I'm on a trail, I do not feel buck naked and all alone. Yeah. I feel something else is going on. And I think my life has been an exploration of what that thing is. What is that thing? But, but I, you, I bring this, in, this story up just basically to say you can see how um, if you don't think you have a worldview, just jump into somebody else's. Okay, if you're if you're someone who's a science who believes science is um, infallible and absolutely the only way for us to get any knowledge in the world or anything else, then stand in the space of a creationist or someone who basically believes in the supernatural just for a little bit, right? And and then sit in there and just go, this doesn't feel right. This feels like this isn't really real. Well, that's just <laughs> helping you determine what your reality is, where you what your worldview is. And I can tell you that this is an unbelievably effective way. Number one, it creates a deep sense of empathy because you, can, you sit in somebody else's view and you're like, oh, well, I see why that person chooses to do that. I've said this many times. It would be a lot easier to be a Christian, significantly easier for me to live my life as a Christian. But I have a fundamental issue with this one particular thing that I think is really crucial and critical. Did this man, was he a God and did he die and was he raised on the third day for the, for my to for you know to to absolve all my sins and I, that story doesn't sit with me in a way but i can hold my mother's point of view her worldview in a deeply empathetic and i see her live it out in a way that's just unbelievably beautiful it it moves me to see it feel my mother's faith and so i say that worldview is an authentic and real i mean who am i to say it wasn't anyway but when you sit in that for a little while you know and i reacted in a really negative atheistically materialist atheist sort of point of view after i came out of my faith but now i view it in a much much more different in a much different way so if some of those listeners are like well i don't think this really matters or i don't think i have one yeah you think reality is something Pick somebody else's who you think has it wrong, sit in there, and it'll A, create an understanding that you do have one. You can start exploring that in a deeper way. And B, you'll have a little bit of empathy of walking through some it being in somebody's space. And here's a real problem. You and I, I know we agree on this topic. One of the primary issues that's going on in our current world, our world politically, um, um, economically, um, from a from a perspective of what's going on with with the future for our children and where our children are going to be in some fifty year hundred year scenario and their children, um, these questions of not understanding other people's worldviews or not being able to stand walk a mile in somebody else's shoes are exactly the problem. One of the main issues of what's going on in our society, and we've got a lot of pundits out there telling us all of the ways to be, but not necessarily telling us how to see. 
or and again, like you said, that we want to we do want to not over overemphasize the visual aspect of the view. One of the ways I like to say it is like your heart has a view too. Your gut, your instinct has a view too. Mm-hmm. Those those are important parts, sort of areas like to, to bring into the context of what a view is. But but I do think that that's something that might be helpful and useful. So as a as an interesting um, project. Um, just just to put our cards on the table, right, and to say, hey, we're talking about this big meta, big picture issue. Jason, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here and say, would you share with our listeners what is your view? And maybe with that view, how you sort of act in the world, like what, what and, and not necessarily all of the ways, but maybe one or two or whatever seems to come up and be resonant or be really kind of um, alive in the moment to talk about with that. Yes, I would do that. That would be fun. Um, <laughs> if to, I think to to put a tag tagline on it, if you will, we'll start simple and then kind of work our way out. Um, there are no answers. There are only questions. That's I think where I like to start with this. Um, my view is my my view is is uh based in values um you know for me that's um love family movement um time outdoors um serving some sort of purpose, making a you know positive impact on society. I kind of, that, that's like the value framework that I come from. Um, but I guess, so view, uh, there, are, there are no answers, there are only questions. Uh, reality is not what it seems. I like, I like that. Uh, as an important view, so I guess um, what what I what I'd like to do is go through like a few points that have shaped my my view, and it, and in this way, I kind of explain a little bit more of what it is. So um, I I grew up, and a lot of this comes. This is hindsight. This is me today <laughs> looking back on the future right with my present mind and my present understanding of the world and renegotiating my understanding of the past this is a very buddhist thing to do um and so i grew up in a socially and politically conservative um and racist household but it was really divided my my dad was more of a a kind of a buddhist more into eastern philosophy although he still practiced western christian religion Um, my mom was Catholic. She grew up in a Catholic household. And so, um, my dad suffered from manic depression most of my life and was gone at an early age. And so I I mostly grew up in that conservative Catholic, uh, socially conservative, politically conservative, racist sort of household. Um, and I, um, the, the first huge realization I had that much of our view is inherited. Um, it, it comes from 
that indoctrination that we have as children in our household, all the lessons that our parents and our grandparents and our aunts and uncles and cousins teach us, um, we, we adopt them early on and we don't even know that we're doing it, right? Well, that um, all led me to war. <laughs> and that was the first time where I, was, I had the realization of like, I shouldn't take for granted everything that everybody has told me leading up, you know, to this point in my life. And um, that was the first time I started to renegotiate my view. I decided uh, in my second Iraq deployment toward the end of my first enlistment or my only enlistment in the Marine Corps that I would go to college. I'm going to take, take the GI Bill money, cut and run. And I got caught in the trap of I need answers about the world. I want to know how we ended up in this war and how I, how I ended up in this situation. And I um, got myopically focused on, on trying to find answers to those questions. And I had a great undergraduate professor who walked into class one day after I'd spent way too many hours in his office during office hours. And, and he said, like, some of you are struggling. You, you want answers about the world. I'm here to tell you there are no answers. There are only questions. And the best you can do is pursue knowledge and insight, ask questions, see where those questions lead you, ask more questions, and don't take for granted that you ever know anything about the world. Now, at the same time, I, I, um, I learned that um, I'm really uncomfortable with using modern scientific methods to understand the world to really shape and define our view. And um, this played out in me taking a, with that same professor, taking a research internship over the summer, looking at a bunch of different political theories about how the international system works. And what it all boiled down to in academia was not really a conversation about people's theoretical views, but rather the statistical models that they used. And as I got further into understanding the world of academia, where much of our insight and knowledge comes from, is it becomes these really esoteric and pedantic arguments about shit like whose statistical model is better, and you lose everything. We'll get into this later when we talk about the, the map is not the territory, right? The territory is not the map. Um, and so... So then I, <clears throat> uh, the last kind of piece of this for me was I pursued this career, you know, the Marine Corps, college, get married, have kids, buy a house, have a career job, all still coming from that view that I inherited as a child, um, only, only to realize that at the end of every rainbow, there was an empty pot of gold. You know, undergraduate wasn't really satisfying. Graduate school wasn't really satisfying. Uh, my first postgraduate fellowship and job wasn't satisfying. My first career corporate job wasn't satisfying. Um, and so I, I kind of, um, th those, my view has really mostly been shaped by those experiences. Um, one, importantly, um, is psychedelics, and I spent a lot of time experimenting with psychedelics in my youth, and um, 
that's really the foundation of my view that reality isn't what it seems. Um, that really we are we are looking at a we are we live in a reality that is very much controlled um, by our genetic experience and evolutionary guide rails. And there is so much more that we can access in the human mind and the human experience than we see every day. And um, in that way, I think if I were to, to um, sum up my view, it is the, the red pill, green pill paradigm in the matrix. <laughs> it really is that we are either awake in this world and um we are we are present we see the world uh you know so i see the world for its simplicity there really is like uh waking up for me waking up every day um spending my time in the way that i think is most valuable that's human relationships family um friends and and contributing positively to society and and not getting caught up in materialistic and and empty pursuits as i see them um or or we are um we're asleep inside the matrix like we're we're living this fantasy world really that is um hyper competitive materialistic superficial uh full of shallow and meaningless transactional relationships and interactions and um and so my yeah my view is that i would love to see people wake up more people yeah, wake there's, up there's nothing like there's nothing like psychedelics to blow out consensus reality consensus reality in that window of time you know uh having also um use psychedelics and, and truly believe them to be uh, helpful in, in at least blow, at least exploding what uh, our, my mom and dad told me was real. I don't just mean my mother and father, but all of ours. And, you know, the, the right. thing that you talk about with that idea of, of our parents and their grandparents is really an old indigenous life way of ancestors and ancestor worship um, yet each child through the process is at most indigenous societies have this, this rite of passage where for your, the first window of your life, you're, you're taking on all of those roles and all of those views that your society has, but that there's a point in which you have a special experience and, and, and psychedelics does sort of fall in a place for some people depend regardless of their age it doesn't matter whether you did it at 16 or you do it at 58 um it has this rite of passage aspect that says hey there's this other world concurrent to this one um whether that world is created just pharmaceutically just from the the biochemical reactions of what's going on in our brains and running around in our brain or if it's actually happening from the perspective of um, a real thing. Is it a real thing? Certainly when you're in it, it feels really real. My experience was that it, it, there was no other, this, I, the, the, as, as 
Aldous Huxley is famous for saying, the doors of perception were cleansed. That what I was seeing was what I see in my day-to-day waking life wasn't really real. This was real. Um, of course, it takes time to really begin to walk back from those experiences and then do this project that we're talking about of boots on the ground. How do you, how do you take that vision? Um, which I think for a lot of people, um, for most people, at least my experience is primarily, and I've used just about every drug there is to use, but my primary um, visionary choice there is, is, a, is a mushroom or, or a psilocybin. Um, and there's a sense of oneness that's definitely permeating that experience. You know, I do know LSD and DMT can have the experiences where, uh, where uh, it so destroys the personal self, the ego self, um, but which is super scary and challenging for people. But I do think that one of the things about psilocybin that's so safe is because it comes from the earth, because it is an earth-based product, it is recognizing your interconnection and asking you to be reminded of that interconnection. Is it conscious? Well, I, I, I could see both sides. I have a strong point of view. I have a strong personal view, but I do think it could be either, that it could just be this pharmaceutical thing, or it could actually be some actually work there are little there are little spirits running around in there trying to wake us up um and you know the crazy thing about about psychedelics is shit like they've been with us for a long 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 time and they may actually be what makes us us there's a lot of theories Correct. that psychedelics makes us us just like there's theories that running has made us us um mm-hmm. so anyway uh yeah i do agree with you that that there's nothing like walking back from a psychedelic experience and um, especially one that's done in a way, as you described, like early on, you probably did those in a um, recreational uh, way, which was more, um, it's definitely a different vibe than when you do it in right. a more ceremonial or sacred way or, or when you ask it to help you with your journey, right? Yeah. You know, it was, it was definitely recreational for me, but I um, can't escape the reality of the experiences, you know, right. And, and Can't they have had much saw. more <laughs> correct. Right. And they've had more meaning over time. It's like a gift that's never stopped giving, right. Like I can look back on it in in reflection and understand, you know, I can just keep getting meaning out of it. Right. And, um, you know, those, those experiences of all of the human constructs we have, right. From like, language to categorization to this is a room and this is a square and like all that melts away and you realize, okay, I'm living in this world that is defined by conceptual human constructs, all of them, Mm -hmm. beliefs, belief systems, cultural norms, values, shapes, language, numbers, right? All of this are things we've created to understand the world. And they they shape everyone's view. And the more that we can we can understand all of these little pieces, the more we can we can shape our own view. We can take um control, if you will. Uh control is a is a tricky concept and, and word. Um, you know, I th- I try to think of um, a river. I love rivers, water, like the constant flow and, and always changing element of nature, right? Like 
uh, I think it's Heraclides, you said, right? You never step in the same river twice. Like I try to just flow with the river um, and see that um, the river is full of obstacles. And, and um, if, you, if you kind of flow with it, you'll make your way around those. The worst thing that we can do is try to swim upriver. Um, we might spend a lot of our time fighting what's happening and learning to connect with the path um, and to let go of like control and attachment is really important. Um, and so when I say control, it's maybe like a freedom is more kind of the concept that you have. You have freedom in, in, in defining your own view of the world. Yeah. Well, sometimes so here's an interesting question. I like to, I like to ask people when I, when I, if I broach the subject of, of a view, right. Of a worldview, um, what's it all mean? To you, what does it all mean? So you could, because you you have you have a framework that you're using to work through the world, right? I feel that from you very strongly, and you've articulated that in a really, really beautiful way. Um, but does it does there is there any meaning down at the bottom of it? You know, for a lot of people, this idea of worldview does sit around this really challenging co- conversation about a god, not necessarily you know the Judeo-Christian bearded dude up in the sky, but just this under this this unmoving mover, this sort of uh, place from which you people, like a bottom of a pool, right? Are you the bottom of the pool or is there some other thing? And I, 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 I can tell from you it's nothing supernatural. Like there's not a, I could feel strongly from there's not a supernatural element to it. I mean, maybe if I'm wrong, let me know. But, but if there isn't that, then what does it all mean? How do you, how do you, because that's a really beautiful question for, for, for pulling out, teasing out that, that, the base level, right? A lot of times people will talk about this as an idea of purpose. The Greek word is telos or telos, like what's your ultimate aim? What's the, what's the point of it all? Do you, yeah. do, you, do you have an answer for that? Or is that a process for you that you're still sort of working through? Um, yeah, I see, I see two interesting questions here, right? What does it mean? And then this idea of purpose, I, I tend to think of the, the purpose piece as um, what is my purpose? What am I here in this life to do? And how can I spend my time in a purpose-driven way? That has been a problem for me. So really localized. Um, so it's like a localized right. thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the, yeah. The, the purpose piece, because it's easy to get caught up in, um, or it's easy for me to make excuses not to do things because there's the, it's not this purpose driven kind of thing. And not in the sense that it's important to use your values and the purpose you want to spend in your life as a framework for decision making and saying yes or no to things that you could do with your time, but more that, um, I can just kind of sit back and be like, oh, nothing's really compelling. And so I'm not going to do anything with my time. (laughs) I've fallen into that trap. Um, And it can be a little bit, you know, psychologically um, challenging to to spend a lot of time worrying about whether or not what you're doing is meaningful and purpose driven. Um, But what is the meaning of of you, I think, is a really is a great question and it's important, right? Cause maybe we're just talking about nothing um, or maybe we're talking about something real that, that has some meaning. And I think that um, when, 
I think that if we are if we don't understand our view um, and we don't see the meaning of it, it's easy to become unmoored, right? To lose our grounding. <clears throat> and <clears throat> for me, the, the meaning in it is to show up in the world effectively, passionately, um, with with humanity and i think that um that that is important and meaningful because in my perspective humanity is in trouble we're we're missing a lot of humanity and so much of that comes from the view and i think that <clears throat> Uh, well, I think religion can be really problematic um, from this perspective. We, when we create views that are based on um, dogmatism and are exclusive, then we're creating views that are problematic for humanity and they can lead um, to crazy world views like slavery, um, racism and war and genocide and human rights problems, environmental destruction, social erosion. And, and so, um, you know, I, I find meaning in, um, in the view and and really trying to see um, the interconnectedness of of like our universal existence, right? Uh, are we all stardust? Are we something more? We're a little bit of both, right? And and we don't know. We don't know anything really. We we know less about a lot of these metaphysical questions than the indigenous people that roamed North America when white people made it here in the 15th century, in the 16th century, in the 17th century. Um, and I, I find it troubling that like we you know we couldn't even survive on the landscape if we suddenly lost all the trappings of modern society. Like we're we're no longer in tune with each other or with the planet that, that provides our life source. And um, so for me, that's the meaning, I think. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So it's always this, this question um, of God is one that I find I guess because I had a God and then I kicked the poor bastard to the curb, right? Um, there's always been, you know, I, th I can't remember which, which theologian said it, but somebody said there's a God-shaped void in all of us. Certainly for those of us who had a God, it definitely there's a God-shaped void. At least for me, I can speak from my own personal perspective. And so there's always this wrestling with that um, 
prime mover is there's this prime mover is this absolute at the end of the day. Um, you know, from my point of view, from a view, uh, I don't need to know the answer to that question. Um, my view doesn't require a God because I'm finding this particular iteration of this life, which you can read into a, a, an openness to reincarnation, multiple lifetimes, um, is that this particular iteration finds me in the 21st century in central Texas and finds me um, with this small family making decisions and choices to optimize and maximize for one of these little, one of the ones, right? Two human beings, my fiance and myself, choosing decisions based around a little five-year-old to optimize. So when I think about these questions of view, I'm always coming back to how. How will this impact Max? How will this impact your son? Like this is a deep, over the last three to four years, this has been a big view change for me is to sit in my view and then to sit in a five-year-old's future view. So is God real? I, I think if you need a God, the God is very useful. We made God up. If we if there's a God and we made it up, okay, taking up sort of, uh, you know, a more what you might call a materialist viewpoint. My father is a strict, I would call a secular materialist who basically thinks we're all worm food. There never was a God. There never has been a God. There never will be. And we'll do it. I, I have a deep affinity for that point of view. I see its wisdom and I see how science has led us to believe that. But I also know that science's main job is to reduce. All, and it's getting worse. Science is mm -hmm. getting worse. Um, we're getting more and more technological advantages, but it's getting worse because it continues to reduce. It's never asking us to come back to a whole. It's never asking us to do what I'm asking us to do right now in this conversation. We can bring it back. So does bringing it back, bring it back to God? You know, my dad just says it doesn't really matter that, that you are, he's a Darwinist. So, okay, so you're just supposed to propagate the species. He said, I did a good job. He's like, he, he used to be a Christian, then he was a Buddhist, <laughs> and now he's like a Darwinist, right? Like that's how my dad's path is. So it's been beautiful to walk down that road with my own father because I'm like, God damn, I can see that point of view. I, I've walked in his shoes and I understand how he's gotten there and how he's been there. But I asked my dad something really, 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 um, hope he doesn't mind me sharing it. I probably won't be sharing it to too many people, right? But um, <laughs> I just said to him that he said at one point in time, he was, he, he was, uh, I was, he was, we were living, he were living in a place where he was asking this question and he, he was a very strong Christian because that's how I was raised that way. He went into the woods and asked the Holy Spirit to give him an answer for a thing. And he walked out and he said at that point in time, he never really knew because it, the Holy Spirit didn't speak to him. And so this is a problem for view with me, with, from my own perspective is a problem of view is, is there's this supernatural spiritual element? Is there this ultimate aim? Is this this ultimate purpose? And I've, at this current juncture, I still leave open the possibility of my dad's point of view of, no, we're just worm food, all the way to an, to a um, transcendent, transcendent, not eminent, but a transcendent, like above and outside of the world of a supernatural outside mover that's acting in some kind of big picture way. I still hold that ontologically. I hold that loosely. I can hold and see that, but I can also see my dad's thing. 
But to me, thinking about Max, thinking about this five-year-old and thinking about Kristen and this small world and our two dogs, right? I, I, and then all the athletes that I worked with, the, taking these, this small community and raising it out, pushing it out. My view of all of that, super simple. It's process. Everything is process. It's all a process. Is it process? Is this process evolving to some ultimate aim, to some higher thing? I think there's some real good, interesting, even scientific theories that that's playing out. Um, there's also theories that we're that the Earth is going to end up snuffing out. So it's not some evolution. But as we watch every day, as I walk out, I just this thing, if you live in central Texas right now, you know, you just saw all your live oaks, all of our live oaks looking bare and naked. We never see naked live oaks, but for like this two-week window of time, we've got all these oaks that lose all their a lot of their leaves. And then in the next, within that two-week period, now we've got green everywhere, and they're exploding with their pollen to the chagrin of many people who have who have issues with it, right? With with yep. with oak allergies and such but if you look at it you look at it you go that tree changed there and it's going to change again and it's going to change again it seems to me that this is the and it, to the point your point that you make i think you and i have a very similar worldview, which is that you never step in the same river twice that it's all a process of change and you know the buddhists talk a lot about suffering it's, you know, one of their primary points is that the reason waking up, this concept you have of wake, that you talked about of waking up, um, is sort of the Buddhist's uh, recognition that there's suffering in the world and that suffering is that you're not awoken. And I don't know about that. I, I, have, I have dabbled in the Buddhist world that I've done a lot of reading in Bud from a Buddhist perspective. I still sort of sit in more of the Western, maybe esoteric point of view, um, but they do align in this one basic point which is everything's always changing. And so therefore you must change. Taking the idea of never stepping in the same river twice is a really interesting one because I spent a lot of time thinking about being and becoming, um, being from the Heideggerian point of view of some kind of ground, like ultimate being, is that a God? It doesn't matter. Philosophically, it's like, we do have this sense of this prime moving thing, right? Unchanging, but is being really unchanging? I have never been in the past. I have never been in the future. I have not once had any experience of that. No real lived phenomenological lived experience of the past. No real lived phenomenological experience of the future. Right now in this conversation that we're having, I'm in a present that's always presenting, presenting and presenting and presenting and presenting. And it seems to me the best view is to stay there in that place and try to keep some level of stability, to try to create some stability is that suffering? This is where I struggle with the Buddhist point of view, is I do think that is suffering to try to create stability in a moving process-oriented space. But I sign up for it. I sign yeah. up for that. I think that's what, it, to me, I, see, I sign up for that aliveness. That what I, that's what I call being alive. That being alive, in my view, means that you're, you're, you're working the two poles, the polarity of two poles, which are on a spectrum. Right. They're not they're not dia, they're not dialogically opposed, they're not complete other ends. They're moving, but moving along that spectrum of of process, ongoing change, and attempting to have some stability, to pay my taxes, to pay my rent, to create some space so that this little five-year-old I'm responsible for has an opportunity to grow. 
So you know, that's where I sit from view for our listeners. Um, how does that practically play out? Woo. I think we're going to have episode after episode after episode of discussion on this topic. Um, I think that's why Jason, we wanted to start here, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. And there's so much to start here. That's why I think it's such a great place to start. And there, you know, so, um, I think what will come, come from this are all, all of the details and the nuances of your view and how it affects things that you do every day, right? So when we talk about the practical and the pragmatic, um, a great example would be you're an athlete, you trained really hard for this race, you didn't accomplish your goals. This is your worldview one where you look at that situation and you see failure and you experience depression and heartache and suffering. And is your view also one where you try to run from that suffering so when, you t- when Buddhists talk about suffering, what I really think about is so much of the suffering that people experience in the, in the human condition is trying to avoid suffering, run towards pleasure, avoid <laughs> suffering, right? Embrace the suffering. It's here. It's not going anywhere. You're going to experience it. Flow with the river. Don't try to swim upstream. Um, or is your worldview one where you look at that failure and you say, that's opportunity knocking at my door. What can I learn from this? How will I take those lessons, fold them in to this present moment and make something better in the future by getting up every day and doing the things that I need to, to overcome whatever was the root of that failure. Um, and so, you know, I, I really look forward to the opportunities to, to get to kind of talk about that and to weave this idea of view into so much um, of, of what we talk about. And so in, in that, um, in that, in that context, I'm curious, Steve, do you see view as synonymous or somewhat synonymous or totally different from, from maybe what a stoic might call a a philosophy of life? To, to me, it's kind of the, the framework um, so, for how we interpret the things happening around us, how we uh, respond to those things, how we make decisions, how we show up in in the world, in relationships and conversations, and how we act. Um, and by act, I don't mean like our yes, behavior but, and shit like that, but like how we intentionally approach things and do things. Yeah, you, you know, bringing up the Stoics um, is super interesting. And I think something that we will, I'm excited to unpack various systems, philosophical systems. Um, and the Stoics are near and dear to my heart. And I've spent a lot of time recently reading um, more about this concept of a, of a of a way of life, um, basically coming off of Pierre Hadot's work that basically is arguing that philosophy itself has been gotten unmoored from its overall most important aspect, which is how do you live? And instead has moved into these big giant theoretical questions, right? So bringing it back to that is, do I think these two things are, are synonymous? I think that when you talk about, especially the Stoics who are an ancient Greek philosophical system, you cannot uh, detach it from this concept of 
of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, and so they're operating on a worldview that has this Platonistic, idealistic forms scenario. So they're basically, in real short, they're basically arguing that they're, Plato argued that there are these idealistic forms that we're all, that they're the real things and everything else is just a manifestation of those things. So super complicated topic. Maybe you and I can unpack it for people at some point in time, but it doesn't really matter at this point because the basic thing is Stoics are known for this sort of real practical application piece, but yeah. underlying the Stoics is this worldview that is really challenging, that there is a good with a capital fucking G and a yeah. True with a capital fucking T and a beautiful with a capital fucking B. And that requires some kind of foundation, some kind of place that it's coming from. Yes, the philosophy of life is the way I'm talking about process of living it. But I do think that's why I have moved away from a platonic point of view. I still really am swimming in it. I, I love it from a from a thought theory and thought perspective. It really makes a lot of sense to me. But forms don't live out in my day-to-day -day experience. And I think that's what the, 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 that's in a lot of ways, that's, that's what the Stoics were wrestling with all along, was how can yeah. they bring this out? How can they practically apply this big concept of forms? And then they said, okay, the good, the true, the beautiful. But I remember when I was first moving into the Greek thought from a Christian perspective, I was like, what the difference is the good, the true, and the beautiful with capital letters than God and all these 10 commandments and all these other things I've been told. Seems to me I've yeah. got to take that on. I've got to take that for granted. I've got to take that from a certain place. And I wasn't comfortable with it. Now I am comfortable with it. But you know why? It's because I believe in process. So maybe I do believe more of way of life than I necessarily do uh, uh, idealism. Um, I would probably, if I had to, if, if someone was looking for a strict categorization of my point of view, it would probably be um, pragmatism. It would probably, which is a really American strain of taking uh, the basics that we learn from science, which is a really important reductionist view, and then bringing it into the ex lived experience on a day-to-day -day perspective. I think I, I'm a little different from the pragmatist in that I don't leave it there. Then I want to bring it back to a whole like Jung does. I'm like maybe a little bit Jungian in that point of view. I want to bring it back and say, we have this, what are archetypes then? Because these archetypes feel really real. For example, I love to use this example of Steve Prefontaine. Most distance runners know Steve Prefontaine as an archetype. They have no fucking idea who Steve Prefontaine is. They've never once yeah. experienced it, even if they've gone to the place where he passed away and they look at that rock and they see it with his date on there. I've done all those things. I've made my pilgrimages. This man lives in me in a deep, deep way. He's, I am a part of Prefontaine. That's a fucking archetype. It's a beautiful, like that is, that's a way of living. That's a way that's taking on a shallow way of living. So where's the fundamentals with that? Like these are, these are, these are not answered by, by, a, by a, just a pure pragmatic point of view. And you know, the, the two real pushers of the pragmatic point of view were um, C.S. Peirce um, and William James. Most people know William James and William James was a definitely a psychonaut. He was definitely pursuing psychedelic concepts. He's also the father of psychology. He's also the father, he's one of the prime movers of this pragmatism. And I just find a lot in 
in, in William James that really, really moves me. But I want to come to William James and I want to, if I got to go for a run with William, I would ask, so is there a God? And he would probably say, does it matter? You know, and, and I hold that place in a really, I, I don't know that that's what he would say. I have a lot more work to do with William James. I have a lot more runs to go on with him and yeah. <laughs> to have with him as a, as a, as a, as a lead, as a as a thought leader for me, as a, probably my prime, my prime, my prime, uh, you might call, he's my hero, if you will. So the the person I'm in a sense trying to find my way through and work through. Um, but yeah, I think that there's there's that you that question you ask about um, way of life is not I, as I just went on a diatribe about it. It's not as simple. Yeah as, as, as people make it. And that's the beauty. That's what makes it so amazing. That's what makes it. It's this. Here's the other thing I'd say. So while I have this idea of process, a part of process is a deep mystery, which we will never answer. And that's my God. Deep mystery, deep mystery that seems to continuously be evolving and processing. What, what struck me in your answer and made me think more deeply about the question I asked is that there, um, in every worldview, so we started by saying everyone has a worldview and they're all unique, right? <clears throat> they're also incredibly subjective. And with every framework of philosophical framework, religious framework, the, inter, the interplay between those, right? Because every major religion has a philosophical arm and then it has a religious, mystical, believe in this magic stuff about the world arm. Um, there is objectivity or the semblance of objectivity in all of those, right? Like if you look at stoicism, the pursuit of virtue is this fundamental pillar of it. Uh, Well, virtue is a construct defined by humans and it serves as this kind of objective reflection point. Right. And, um, and so we have this, this, dichotomy of subjectivity objectivity and a worldview is is entirely subjective i would i would argue i could be wrong um and when we tether it to objective things in the world right that some might consider a truth or an answer or something like that um i think we get into dangerous ground of like if I if I anchor to something objective and I later see that that ob- is not an objective truth about the world, what do I do then? Um, and this is where we constantly reshape our view, right? Uh, as we as we subjectively analyze what we take to be objective truths about the world. Yeah, this question of objectivity and subjectivity is. Uh, uh, a wonderfully messy minefield because um, because of the way people view science these days, right? There's uh, uh, going back to my hero William James. He's he, one of the key tenets of pragmatism is that it's um, fallible. It's it's fallible. That science is fallible. It's a fallibleist. It's it's just it's it's a constantly trying to come to answers that are not answers to help us see more clearly. But it, you must hold the fallibility in play. And the Stoics would do well to hold virtue um, as fallible, right? As a as a as fallible because because there seems to be this ongoing. First, there's this thing you're arguing, which is you're stating, which is subjective. So we we really can't ever 
um, especially if you take the science and go down into deeper into what we know. I, I'm not a physicist, so I'm, I'm speaking out of turn here. Is not, a, But I've done enough reading in physics to know that there's a really, really important thing about the person viewing a thing's impact on a thing in actuality. So our questions of what's real, even from a scientific perspective, have required some pretty fluid and flexible thinking. This is the history of the 20th century, which is I mean, we live, the 20th century is the most interesting century of all because all of this, all of this information has been getting processed by incredibly wonderful minds of men and women and, and, and they're all of that objective information is all based in the subjective point of view. Every single one of those was based <laughs> on a subjective point of view. And even the hard yes. science is on a subjective point of view because we know okay, so, any um, scientific experiment may, being done, you're trying maybe to, to like objectivity, bring... but it can't be removed. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we can wrap it there unless you've got. So we're going to so put a book. We'll put a bookmark in that one. So yeah, let's 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 bring yeah, it back. Yeah. Let's bring it back around. And, and so I'll, I'll put the question to you, so we get a little bit practical here. If if someone doesn't have a clear world view, but they want to work on this, and they're feeling like at one point in time we were really clear on what we were saying today, and at other points of time we shattered any sense that there's clarity yeah. on this subject. What what can they do? Where is a good place to start uh, as one sort of searches to understand what their view is today and how they might start to cultivate something that they feel a little bit more ownership on? Cool. Well, I, I take as a as a core. I'll take the ideas of Robert Anton Wilson. This idea of Robert Anton Wilson that I that I think is really helpful here. He talks about an idea of reality tunnels, and you 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 spoke. You didn't use the word reality tunnels, but earlier in this conversation, you absolutely were talking about how we are all functioning through a consensus. There's a consensus reality that we're sort of all agreeing and resharing, but we are each looking at reality through our own tunnel. And so my first suggestion would be to, to see if that jives with a person. Um, because if somebody doesn't recognize that there are reality tunnels, then um, they've got a good, strong, powerful worldview. And we don't, they don't need to work on it anymore. There's nothing to do. Just, just go down that path until there's, until there's uh, an event that comes in to crack it. Right. Um, this is one of the, you know, full circle of that story I told about my athlete. Um, at one point in time, I said he was the easiest athlete I could coach because I knew that his worldview was unshakable. Um, and it still is. He still lives in that space. It's still the way that he views the world. And so my view is if you've got a view, you don't need to listen to any more of what we talk about. Don't unpack it. Just move on. But if you are questioning and you are trying to find something, just realize, I would start with the concept of a reality tunnel. Do you have a way that you view the world? Is it yours? And what of it is other people's? And and then, and then you might go into that question that you talked about because the real way to kind of unpack it practically is to then take that view, that reality tunnel, and subject it to values you hold um, for yourself, um, for your family and friends and loved ones, for your leaders, if you've got a political affiliation or you've got heroes, 
um, they're already exhibiting values that are coming from their reality tunnel. So what's your reality tunnel and how does your reality tunnel align with your values? And then how does that align with other people? And then look at this as an ongoing process. Um, to finish up with the idea of the ground of the pool, the funny thing is there's always a ground to a pool. Um, if you allow aliveness, just the fact that you will find yourself here. I like the idea of a reality tunnel itself as a bottom of a pool, that something's working. And if it's not working, work to fix it, and then it will become a bottom of a pool. Um, if a person's a really, really good swimmer, the pool will be a very, very, if you're in the ocean, uh, I, I'm okay right now in my life. I don't need a bottom of a pool. I'm pretty fluid and flexible, right? I'm going to have really traumatic things come into my life and break in, but I'm currently comfortable. My worldview can sustain and handle that fracture, whether that will play out in my values and my choices and my decisions over time are a good question. There's there, 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 uncertainty, right? Is that is still there, but I do think that would be my greatest suggestion is to say, okay, do you, if you've got a worldview, hold. If you are wondering if you have a worldview, we'll look at your tunnel. How are you viewing things? Um, and 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 then holding that fluidly and recognizing that values play out of that um, will begin to allow you to unpack um, a lot. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing process. Um, but if you stayed with us here this long, Jason, if they've been with us this long, I'm certain that they will get a lot of very valuable um, thought projects um, and and concepts from this as they go forward. How about you? What, where do you see are some steps or active principles that people could use practically to try to pull this 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 thread through? One thing that I like to do on a regular basis is really sit down and um, think about my core values <clears throat> and rewrite them. I try to force myself into like a five, like a maybe five value list, something, you know, around that. I don't want to say like, I very much believe when everything is important, nothing is important. So when we think about values, it's really what, what we think is most important about the world and who we are and what we do. And so I revisit that regularly. Um, our values can change based on our beliefs, based on our experiences, uh, based on just like, I don't know, you get older, you get married, you have kids, you take on financial responsibility, the things you value can change uh, a lot. And so it's important that we, we keep coming back to values and really think about how uh, our values are a reflection of, of how we view the world um, and our view is a reflection of our values. It's a reciprocal relationship. Um, and I, I think that can really, that can help provide some groundedness and it can help make it easier um, to move through life, right? Uh, it gives you a little bit of a framework or a sounding board or reflection point for when you're making decisions, when you're making tough decisions, um, when, you're, when you're thinking about how you want to respond to conflict that you might encounter in your life. Um, and so, you know, I think that that, 
that can be a really good just starting point, right? Like here's a practical thing to have in your toolkit every day. And, a, and I think a really good entry point for starting to reflect on, on how you view the world. You know, if you have on your list of values, something that is material, like maybe it's wealth or something like that, um, reflect on how something like that affects your view of the world, right? Like that's maybe a little bit of a materialist view of the world. Um, if you see time as more valuable than material, right? Um, and that, and that time, how you spend that time, you know, is going to be a reflection of your values. And so just kind of think about, think about that a little bit, right. And spend some time reflecting on it while you're out running or, um, driving around in the world. <laughs> um. Yeah. To, to bear on that idea of values, I think, um, to bring it to another piece is, um, it's sometimes useful to take a value and then, um, find a person in the world who exhibits that value that you're valuing and then look at their worldview. Um, especially if you're really curious, if you, if you, if you're a little unmoored and ungrounded in this, I think your recommend, your recommendation of values is super helpful, um, because they are, they are values acted upon change the world values themselves don't correct so looking for that person that's acting it out in the world might be able to create a triangulation back over to what that view that person's coming from and if it's really different from yours well again we're going back to that standing in the shoes of someone who's different and and having some respect for them um you know i know as as a as a reader of stoicism um, you are conscious of of the the amazing value, the, the how important Marcus Aurelius is, and how incredibly useful Marcus Aurelius is as a guide for um, for a, a lot of values you probably hold. And then you can look and say, what was the Marcus Aurelius's life? And when you see that, you really do see um, a, something amazing for for someone who values Jesus Christ, someone who views love. And you, you, love is a little nebby, can be, we've got a, a core experience of love, but to, to ground it in a worldview, you can bring it up to Jesus and what was Jesus doing? Well, he gave all these teachings and all these statements about love, and then he literally enacted or, or symbolically enacted love as an event in the world. And so then that will come back to a worldview. What is that worldview that he's talking about? And at the end, you're probably going to triangulate back to some kind of worldview that you can sit in for a while for a reality tunnel that you can take for a ride and, and, and vibe. And, you know, coming back to the argument for psychedelics, you want to try a different reality tunnel on for a ride. Mm -hmm. There's a way to do that. Yeah. Open your mind. You're, I, I really like your focus on, on action, right? Um, because we have talked about a lot of abstractness, uh, a lot of abstract concepts. And you made me think about Ben Horowitz's cultural manifesto, what you do is who you are. And so as much, you know, another thing to pay attention to are your actions, your behaviors, the way you talk to people, treat people, interact with people, the things that you say, because no matter what you write on paper as your values or what you think to be your worldview, 
the things you do really are are what define you and and are more representative of your worldview, right? I think about the people who are like, say some racist shit and somebody calls them out for it and they're like, I'm not racist. I got black friends or I got brown friends or whatever, right? Like, um, you might, you, you, what you, you, you might like to think that, but the reality is your innate reaction reflects more your worldview than what you think, right? Um, another, another example of this would be like, you know, my, my son talks back all the time and I say, Hey, you're talking back. Well, I didn't intend to do that. That's not what I meant to do. And it's like, okay, well, your intentions are one thing. What you're actually doing is another thing. And so I think that, um, you can't ever strip action out of it. Right. Um, for sure. Cool. Well, any last things you want to share? Anything else you think that we need to cover here? I mean, as you said, we're probably going to keep coming back to this line of discussion over and over again. And I think we've we've at least unpacked it in a way I think hope that will be helpful for people. I know that a lot of athletes that I talk to, they get really grumpy sometimes when I talk about a worldview. And I now have a resource to send them to, right, to say, hey, I, I think you'll jive with some of what Jason and I are talking about here as sort of it's really critical to investigating what kind of result you want on a given day. And, um, and I don't have time and a lot of times to go through this. And there's a lot of reticence to engage in a one-on-one -on -one way with people because it can be challenging. And it can be, you, if you haven't asked some of these questions, you can feel a little bit like, well, what have I done with my life? I mean, that certainly happened to me when I began yeah, to start to wrestle absolutely. with this. It got to be like, a, what, what am I really doing? And, um, um, and and hopefully you can find other people to talk about this with. And if if you if you can't, then find me or Jason because we'll probably talk to you about it. We we love talking yeah, about yeah. this stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. It could certainly be unsettling to to start to question your view of reality or your worldview, whatever you want to call it. And um, just uh, come back to the river analogy. Just flow with the river and don't get too caught up. You know, if you feel a little unmoored, sometimes that's okay. You're going to continue to find your ground and you might be like a rock skipping over the water. You know, at times you feel like you're on solid footing and at, and at times you don't, and that's okay. Embrace it. Uh, don't judge yourself for anything that you've held as your view or a belief or anything like that. This is very non-judgmental. Um, I think for, for me, I want to talk about view, like let's <laughs> strip judgment from everything that we do. Um, and, and so that's right. You're right, Steve. It's, it, this could be a challenge. And, and I, and I do like your point that if you feel like you have a strong view, then run with that, you know, and if something comes up in your life that challenges it and you're confronted with that, then embrace it and see where it goes. Beautiful. Well, Jason, I think we did a good job of unpacking a concept for our very first concept. And we and it's a tough yeah. one. You know, we we did wonder as we were banding about ideas, um, it would have been easier to pick a smaller one probably than this one to get started with. But I think we did a pretty good job and we've at least brought some questions to bear for people. And um, I, we've at least put a strong foot down for what we hope for Arete to for Arate to be, for how we want it to be, and what we hope people will gain from um, our dialogues and our conversations. So um, if you're interested yeah. in more of these, just if you're 
we'll, we'll get them rolling out. Jason and I are hoping to get a, a recording out every two weeks or so. Um, and we might make them happen faster, but we might make them happen slower. We're not really sure. So we're committed to um, at least four to five episodes of these. I've got a strong suspicion based on the smile that Jason has on his face right now and the smile I have on my face right now that this was fun for us. Um, we've yeah. also made a strong commitment not to chase metrics at this point. So if we have two listeners, we're going to, we're going to be speaking to each other with you in mind. And if we have 10,000 listeners, we'll be to speaking to each other with all of them in mind. We're, we're committed to, um, this relationship and this as an un- unique and unusual a- a format for having a conversation between runners, coaches, and friends and um, join us for more of these if you enjoy them. Um, Over time, we'll give you more opportunities to engage with us, ways to engage with us. We've got plans for how those things might look, come out and how they might play out. But for now, just let Jason and I get the ball rolling and see where it leads us. And um, if you're interested, um, you can always reach out to me specifically. You can reach out to me at sisson at runnosis.com and um, let us know how you feel. I'm not going to ask you to Give us any stars or write us a review or any of that shit. We, 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 need, we need to give you some content before we ask you to <laughs> yeah. uh, do anything with it. So, um, again, thanks, Jason, for your time today. I really appreciate you and really appreciate your, your willingness to be vulnerable and engage. And, um, man, more, let's have more of these. This is really cool. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for pushing me out of my comfort zone uh, and giving me someone to talk to about some some meta. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks.